So let's open up to Matthew chapter 14. The title of this sermon is When Jesus Gives and Is Bread. And we have a familiar story here. Most everybody has heard the story, whether you're a Christian or not, where Jesus feeds the 5,000 with just a few loaves of bread and a couple of fish. So a familiar story, but a lot to be learned here. Matthew chapter 14, we'll be looking at verses 13 through 21. I am reading and preaching from the NIV this morning. <clears throat> You remember last week we ended with uh, Herod, King Herod, beheading John the Baptist. We saw the way that Jesus responded to that in a surprising and instructive way. And now we just kind of pick up the story right there. So in Matthew 14, 13, it says, When Jesus heard what had happened, he withdrew by boat privately to a solitary place. Hearing of this, the crowds followed him on foot from the towns. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them and healed their sick. As evening approached, the disciples came to him and said, This is a remote place and it's already getting late. Send the crowds away so they can go to the villages and buy themselves some food. Jesus replied, They do not need to go away. You give them something to eat. We have here only five loaves of bread and two fish, they answered. Bring them here to me, he said. And he directed the people to sit down on the grass, taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke the loaves. Then he gave them to the disciples and the disciples gave them to the people. They all ate and were satisfied. And the disciples picked up 12 baskets of broken pieces that were left over. The number of those who ate was about 5,000 men besides women and children. This is God's holy word. Let's pray. Thank you, God, for your great love for us. Even though we're sinners and rebels, you love us, you pursue us. Thank you for sending your son, Jesus, to die on the cross for us, that we, through the repentance of sins and faith in him, might have new life, abundant life, and eternal life. Thank you, God, for so great a love, so great a salvation. And Lord, sometimes uh, in this life we run ourselves ragged, but you, Jesus, are the one who is meant to sustain us. We're to find all of our sustenance and hope and strength and endurance and peace and joy in this crazy world in you. So give us hope for that today. Thank you for your word, which is inerrant and true, the very word of God. Help us to hear it, to receive it, to be encouraged by it, challenged by it for our good and for your glory. And please help me, Lord, to teach and preach in a way that's faithful to the Bible and helpful to the church. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. <clears throat> well, about 20 years ago or so, uh, I never thought I'd be old enough to say that, by the way, that I could actually remember something from 20 years ago, but there we are, a little over 20 years ago, actually. My wife and I were on the beach, no surprise there, in Huntington Beach. And uh, the reason is my job at the time uh, for Channel Island Surfboards, a family business, was coaching surfers and competitive surfing, young kids, primarily. So Kate, we weren't yet married, but we were pretty serious, and she would cruise with me to those things, and uh, we'd go hang out with kids all day and help them through surf contests and stuff. And one day, we're down at Huntington Beach, and Kate and I were reading the Bible on the beach. Honestly, it was the first time I ever had a Bible, like, out in public, which, you know, that can always be a weird thing. Have you ever opened a Bible on an airplane? 
that's a crazy thing, right? Like you sit next to the person, especially if you rock big Bibles, like I have big Bibles. All you millennials go for the little Bibles. These are man Bibles, like, and you open up your tray and then you slap this thing down. You open it up. People are like, anyway, we have the Bible in public. We were just getting that bold. And this kid comes up to us. He's about 13 years old or so. And he says, uh, what are you doing? So we're reading the Bible. He goes, what's in the Bible? Well, what do you mean what's in the Bible? He goes, well, I don't know. Oh, uh, we've been having, uh, right on cue there. Ooh, God. <laughs> it's not God. We've been having technical difficulties with the lights all day long. So don't try to read anything into it. And that will happen several more times during the sermon. We will just all ignore it and not get distracted from my point. As I was saying, he said, what's in the Bible? And, you know, Kate and I kind of grew up in Christian homes, and we just assumed that everybody knew what was in the Bible all the time, and they grew up hearing Christian stories, and he had a legitimate question. So Kate and I kind of looked at each other, we're like, wow, okay, well, um, and we started in Genesis. And we just started explaining to him what was in the Bible as best we could from the very beginning. Spent that better part of the whole day on the beach talking about it. And then we were driving him back to Carpinteria that night. The whole drive back from Carpinteria talking about it. Pulled into Carpinteria ending on the book of Revelation. <laughs> told him the whole thing. And uh, that kid put his faith in Jesus Christ that day. It was an incredible experience that we had. It was, yeah, praise God. It was the first time that Kate and I had ever shared Jesus with anybody, and we were pretty blown away. And it really opened our eyes to something we were unaware of, which was a profound need around us. You know, this was just one of the local kids in Carpinteria who just surfed tar pits all the time. And we didn't realize that even though we were Christians and grew up in a Christian home, that there's, there's kids here in our city who didn't know who Jesus was and the good news about him and what the Bible had to say about him. That kind of opened up our eyes. And then it created this, this thing in us where we wanted to see something done about that. So Kate and I weren't going to church at the time, but we were attending a local Bible study. And we went to this Bible study and this older couple, uh, we were telling them the story because we were just excited. And so we're explaining it to them and we're like, and these kids, like all of his bros and all these kids that we surf with all the time and we know they don't, they don't know about Jesus. You guys, you Bible study leaders, you, you got to go down and tell these kids. And they looked at us and they said, maybe you should go tell these kids. In a moment, they flipped the script on us in what was one of the most profound moments of clarity and call from God we have ever experienced as a couple. Now, that is very similar to what's happening in our story here. Jesus is flipping the script on the disciples he is opening their eyes to this great need around them. He, he's causing them to see it in a different way. And then he's pulling them into it. He's not letting them get away with, well, someone else or God should. He's pulling them in to being a part of the solution. Now, the problem was a big problem, right? We're told that Jesus had gotten in the boat, gone to the other side of the lake with the disciples, and that a lot of people in the villages saw him heading over there, and they started running around the lake and like got there when he did, right? So this big horde of people chases him to the other side. We're told that there were 5,000 men plus women and children. So maybe there's like 10, 15, 20,000 people there. There's a lot of people there. And we're told in the book of Mark that not only was Jesus healing them, as we read in Matthew here, but he was also teaching them many things. And now it's beginning to be nighttime. 
And so we've got several thousand people gathered here. And it says in our text, it was a remote area. So remember, they weren't intending to spend the whole day or the night. They were just chasing Jesus in the boat, trying to chase him down. Now they're there. Jesus has been teaching. They've been there all day long. And there's a big problem. The disciples say, look, this is a remote area, no place to eat. We've got several thousand people. Jesus, send the people away, right? Like they got to eat and there's nothing around them. So send them away. The problem with that is Jesus. Jesus came to reveal the love, mercy, compassion, provision of God toward humanity. And so what the disciples were going to discover is that what was once good enough isn't good enough anymore. I'm sure they had awesome intentions. They weren't like, send these people away. We're disgusted with these people. Let them go eat somewhere. That wasn't their intention. They were like, Jesus, these people, they've been here learning all day. You've been healing them. They need some food. Send them away to get food. Jesus is doing something different. They had good intentions, but what was good enough wouldn't be good enough anymore. What once made sense and their suggestion made all the sense in the world didn't necessarily, wasn't necessarily the most godly thing to do anymore. And doing as expected was not the way that the kingdom would always work. Jesus is revealing and drawing them into something deeper here as it pertains to the needs around them. Look at what we're told in the book of Philippians. Skip down to verse three. Verse three says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourself. Hold on right there for a minute. That is the most otherworldly, radical statement that most people inside or outside the church would pay lip service to, but very few people live out of that space. Moms do. That's about it. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. Not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. And it continues. In your relationships with one another, have this same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage, Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Now, Jesus, God draped in humanity, humbled himself because of love to pursue us by being born a virgin and placed in a manger subjected to the conditions of this world, and then eventually rejected by the people of this world, spit on, beaten, mocked, crucified. And he did it for us. He did it for love. He did it for our good. Yes, for his own glory, for the glory of God, but for our good. Christ suffered in our place, gave himself that we might have the forgiveness of sins. And what Paul is saying there, what Jesus is trying to draw us into and the disciples into of this text is that we also are supposed to live out of this place of other orientation, other-centered ways of being. You know, our go-to is to think about ourselves, primarily, ultimately, and always. Jesus is calling us and the disciples here 
toward being more like him. And so he calls them higher by responding to their good intentions, their well-reasoned sort of logic, and doing what normally would have been expected, look, send them away to get food, by telling them to provide the food for the people themselves. This is where he flips the script. Verse 16, they don't need to go away. You give them something to eat. There's where Jesus flips the script on the disciples. They had been good-intentioned and sensible and logical, but Jesus is calling them deeper, higher. And now they respond with the same sort of good sense, good intentions, and logic. The Gospel of John gives us some details that Matthew leaves out. We are told that Andrew, Philip, Andrew, Philip, one of them, one of those cats says to Jesus in response, listen, it would take half a year's wages for everybody gathered here to just get a bite. That's how he responded, right? Logical, like actually assessed it. He wasn't, I don't know that he was being dismissive. He was actually like, okay, well, Jesus just said we should feed him. Like Jesus is the boss. What should we do, guys? Like I took an assessment of our resources and if we had half a year's wages, everyone would just get a bite. This doesn't make like financial sense. And then we're told that Andrew or Philip, the other one, can't remember who it was, is the one who, Andrew, he got the five loaves of barley and the two fish from a kid, right? One took some kid's lunch and brought it to Jesus and says, well, Jesus, here's what we do have. They thought about it, assessed it, reasoned, tried to muster up any resources they could, And I think that the point they came to is, Jesus, what you're asking us to do doesn't make sense. It made way more sense for us to ask you to just send the people away so they could find some food. You asking us to supply food for them doesn't make sense. Now let's camp out there for a moment. Haven't we who have been following Jesus for any time at all Discovered, discovered, excuse me, that Jesus asks us to do things that are beyond what can be expected and beyond what can be accomplished. Can I get a witness? I mean, that's, he's always messing with our gig, right? Like, here's what we would expect to do. Send them away and get some food. No, you give them food. Ah, oh. well, there's several thousand of them. We only get, yeah. Right? Like, same thing with Noah. Imagine being Noah. God comes to Noah, Noah, build a boat. Uh, there's no water. Build a boat. How big of a boat? It's got to be pretty big. Giraffes, elephants, all that stuff. Big boat. He starts to build a boat. How long? 120 years he built the boat. Couldn't be expected. Beyond what could be accomplished. God was messing with his gig. This is what God, Abraham. Right, God said to Abraham, Abraham, I want you to leave your home and go to a place. Where am I going? Tell you when you get there. What about Moses? Moses, I want you to go before Pharaoh and say, Pharaoh, let my people go. And Moses, how will they know? He says, tell them, I am sent you. What does that mean? (laughs) The list goes on and on. David and Peter and Paul, all kinds of things. It's just that 
Part of the way that God works is calling us beyond ourselves into the needs of the world. That's just like kind of part of the gig. It's the way that God has always worked. But it's not that foreign to us. Don't we also work that way? I mean, this is kind of normal for humanity. At least it's normal for parents, right? I have a three-year-old little girl, Fifi. And yesterday, Kate and I were doing some chores around the house, uh, fixing some stuff, planting some trees, planting a garden, moving dirt, doing cool stuff, you know what I mean? And we have this big, it's not a wheelbarrow, it's like a cart that you would pull. Uh, it's called a gorilla cart, actually. Got it at Costco. It's a, no, Home Depot. It's unbelievable. Holds 600 pounds if you wanted to put 600 pounds in it. And we were loading this thing up with dirt and moving it back and forth across our yard, you know, to plant a tree and move some dirt. And we have a three-year-old, so she's always there, right? Three-year-olds, they don't generally entertain themselves. She's just always there. And there's little Fifi looking up at me as I'm moving this cart. And so what do I do? I do what any father would do. Fifi, you want to help me move this cart, sweetheart? Oh, yeah, Daddy. You know, so Fifi comes over and she grabs the handle. And of course, this is too heavy for her. This is more than can be expected. This is more than she could ever possibly accomplish. But what does the loving father do? The loving father invites her into it, places it into her hand. And yet my hand always remained on the handle. And together we pulled. Now, the strength was 99.999%. No, it was 100% mine. It was 100% mine. It wasn't her strength. And you know what? I could have done it faster, more effective, and cleaner without Fifi. (laughs) But this is the way things work, right? Because I want Fifi to grow, because I want Fifi to be challenged and to be strengthened, and because I love her. I place her hand on the cart with mine. This is what God does with us. God could have built an ark. Jesus could have fed these people. He didn't need the disciples to feed the 5,000. He wanted the disciples to know that they needed him to meet the needs around them. He's pulling them into a very tangible ancient experience of God. He's pulling them into an ancient experience of God. And that is that God always chooses to work through his people rather than independent of his people. Have you ever heard that before? You heard it from me. God chooses to work through people rather than independent of people. This is just what God does. This is his economy. This is an effect of his love. And this is what's going on in this text. And so he tells him, you, you feed the guys. You feed the people. And what he's doing there is creating a space where they suddenly find themselves having to care more for people and depend more on God. Jesus created a space, a situation where his followers had to care more for people, at least differently. Care more for people and depend more on God. Maybe this happened to them. I don't know. I can't speak for them. I'll, I'll speak to my, for myself. Oftentimes, I don't care enough 
And that's why I don't find myself desperate enough for the help and the provision and the strength of God. Maybe they weren't desperate enough because they didn't care enough. They cared in a certain way, in a logical, reasonable, as expected, good way. But God, Jesus here is calling them to care more. And honestly, sometimes I just don't care about other people's plights in their situations. Certainly, I don't care enough to do something about it. So I don't find myself needing the provision, the strength, the power of God in the Spirit. And here's the weird thing about caring. You can't make someone else care about what they don't care about. Right? Like you tell me something like, I don't care. You're not going like, to change my mind. Like, oh, here's, you know, you just like, that's the way the heart is. You can't, you, you know, can't change what you care about. But God does intend to change what we care about. Some of you wives have been, nah, never mind. I was going to digress. Trying to change your man. Mm. A couple amens right there, huh? Maybe we just like kill the lights. Maybe that's less distracting, Ryan. Should we just do that? That's good enough, huh? Yeah, darkness. Um, Okay, where was I? Wives. Okay, I'm not going to go there. That's dangerous ground. I'm not going to go there. God does intend to change what we care about. This is part of the work of sanctification. This is part of what God's word and God's spirit is always endeavoring to do. Part of being formed into the image of Christ, part of being Jesus followers, looking more like Jesus in this world, is caring more and more about what Jesus cares about. And God is able to accomplish this in us. Look what it says in Philippians 2. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. This is the truth for the Christian life. God is at work in us, transforming us for his will, his work, and his good pleasure. Causing us as his people to care more about what he cares about. Perhaps to care in a different way or a deeper way or an unexpected way, as the disciples were discovering. And usually, God is going to beckon us into this care for others in a way that really challenges us in and of ourselves, and causes us, as we are meant to be, desperate for God. It's one thing to operate out of our strengths in life. Everyone wants to operate out of their strengths, right? Who doesn't want to like get in their sweet spot? Dude, let me do what I'm best at and let me operate out of that. And that's, this is where I'm good. And that's, that's totally cool. That's part of life and you have strengths and get on with your bad self. But part of the Christian life is learning to function out of our weak places. Learning to come to Jesus in our weaknesses, in our lack in our want, where we don't seem to have understanding or resource or ability or where we don't even have desire. Jesus, is, Jesus invites us to bring our lack and place it into his hands. Right? They came to Jesus and said, look, here's what we got, dude. We got three loaves and two fish. And Jesus says, bring them here to me. Jesus takes them into his hands 
and he blesses them and he multiplies them. Teaching the disciples and us that our lack in the hands of Jesus can actually be more than enough in his work. And that's a place that we're, we're supposed to sort of learn to live as Christians that live life on mission. As Christians, we're called to live life on mission, to see ourselves as sent people, to meet the needs of the world for the glory of Jesus Christ and the good of the world. And that's a challenging thing. And we're not called to do it in and of ourselves. We're actually called to live in a desperate place of need. Look what Paul said in somewhere, 2 Corinthians. Paul said about mission, not that we're adequate in ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves, but our adequacy is from God, who also made us adequate as servants of a new government. Government? Covenant. (laughs) Our adequacy comes from God. Now you notice that when Jesus took the lack from their hands, multiplied it and made it abundance, what did he do next? He then put it back in their hands. Right? Remember, he put it back in the disciples' hands and they distributed it to the people. Again, he didn't need a middleman. Jesus could have done it in and of himself or he could have just made the bread and the fish appear in their mouth. It was God after all, but he involves them again to be conduits of his grace, conduits of his mercy, conduits of his provision. Look, not that we are adequate in ourselves to consider anything is coming from ourselves. The good that happens in the world according to the gospel and God's mission is from God, but it comes through us. God chooses to work through us rather than independent of us. And how silly would it have been if the disciples in distributing the bread, as people said, no doubt, thank you. They said, oh yeah, that one's from me. Got your back. Like, it wasn't from you. It was from God. Jesus multiplied the bread. You didn't really do anything but bring your measly little provision, your lack to him, and then receive from him and distribute. That's Christian life. That's Christian mission. But sometimes we never get to that second place of needing adequacy from God, God's provision, because we refuse to get to that first place of letting God's concerns become our concerns, God's cares become our cares. We never get to that place that that Jesus is beckoning us to, that Philippians beckoning us to, to consider others as more important than than ourselves. And and we often just live from the space of self-preservation. I don't know, I... I find that sometimes I, I don't experience the, the provision or the power of God because I, I, I just don't I just don't care enough about other people and what their needs are. So what this text does for me is it it, it makes me have to take stock of that and, and like if I find myself always able to live out of my strengths then maybe I'm not really doing the stuff that God would be trying to open my eyes up to engage in. Maybe I'm just, you know, I just want to live out of strength 
and comfort and self-preservation. But I think that when we step out and we're pulled in like the disciples are, we, we, we begin to live out of this place of desperation. Like, we, this would be a half a year's wages. We only have this much. We could never do this apart from you, God. And God would say, yes, that is the whole point. But I find sometimes trapped in my selfishness. And for me... It's not that I think that God's not going to come through with a provision when I step out. It's that I somehow think that God is going to take from my life and I'm going to have less fun or less stuff or less of me, whatever that means, left over. So I start to live in this like, again, build, protect, this is mine, self-preservation, self-promotion place. And that just isn't the power of God. It's not where the power and provision of God are be, to be discovered. Those are be, to be discovered in those places of weakness. The Apostle Paul discovered that, and he said in 2 Corinthians 12, 9-10. Uh, give me a different one. Give me the next one, see what we got. Survey says. <laughs> give me a second. There it is. So when Paul was complaining about some difficulties in his life, some problems that he had, he asked Jesus three times to change his situation. And in verse nine, each time Jesus said to me, my grace is all you need. My power works best in weakness. Paul said, so now I'm glad to boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ can work through me. That's why I take pleasure in my weaknesses and in the insults, hardships, persecutions, and troubles that I suffer for Christ. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Paul had a lot of strengths. Paul was well-trained, well-educated, savvy, had cultural prowess. Like He had a lot of strengths he could work work out, but he learned that following Jesus and living life on Christian mission often meant more than our strengths. It meant our place of weaknesses and being willing in faith to bring our lack and place it in the hands of Jesus and let him multiply. But I get stuck in that place of if I, if I do that, if I try to feed the 5,000, and there's going to be, I'm going to miss out on some fun stuff or I'm not going to have enough stuff or my life is going to be less or there's going to be less of me or, or less time for my family. Anybody else ever feel that way and that's why you're selfish? Or what's your excuse? And so I need to hear what Jesus would say a few chapters later to Peter and the boys and Matthew 16, then Jesus said to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. There it is. See, that's what I find myself doing. Like preserve, build, protect, save my life, thinking that I'll I'll have a better, richer, more fuller life if 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 I live from that place of strength and preservation. But whoever loses their life for me will find it. Jesus confronts that self-oriented lie, that American lie, that if we accumulate, hold, preserve, operate from strength, then we'll have a rich and abundant life. And Jesus said, that's not actually the way. If you're willing to lose your life for me, bring your lack and place it in my hands, and experience my strength through your weakness, then you have the fullness of life. 
What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? I wonder how much of my soul I forfeit every time I forego someone else's need to build and accumulate for myself. I'm not preaching to you. I'm preaching to myself right there. Here's something that Jesus and Paul understood that the disciples in the crowd were meant to learn that day. Our life, our lack, our efforts poured out in service to Jesus and others will always provide an abundance back. Because God by nature is not a taker, God is a giver. For God so loved the world he gave. And it's been said somewhere once before, you can never outgive God. Even if we just have a few loaves and a few fish. What did it say in verse 20? They all ate and were satisfied. And the disciples picked up 12 baskets of broken pieces that were left over. Look at what happened when they took their lack and their weakness, when they were called deeper and they put it in the hands of Jesus. Everybody ate and was satisfied. But those who face the situation as the weakest and the most overwhelmed and needing God most, the disciples, those who served, who served, and endeavor to meet the needs, even though it was beyond what they could do, they had an overabundance. They picked up 12 baskets full. How many disciples were there? 12. Everybody else ate and was satisfied, but that's all they had. But those who were willing to give their lives and to pour out and be weak in the purpose of Jesus and meet the needs by the power of Jesus, they had a basket each left over. There's something profound to be learned there. I think that if I preserve and protect and build and be strong, there I will find abundance. But the story tells me that actually in bringing my weakness to Jesus and being willing to give myself away and serve him, there I find a rich abundance of life. Does that make sense? And then this this whole vignette, this whole incident, is meant to be a sign that would teach everybody present there and the disciples and us the true place of sustenance, of richness, of nourishment in this life. Jesus goes on to explain, because this miracle is a sign. It wasn't just like, people are hungry, here's Chick-fil-A. Like it, it, was, it, was, it was something else. It was a sign that pointed to something. So the next day, Jesus actually explains it to the people. Matthew doesn't include it, but John has it. So turn to John chapter 6. And we'll just finish right there. John chapter 6. We'll put it on the screen in case you don't have a Bible with you. John chapter 6. When you get there, say, got there. Got there. Everybody's there. John chapter 6. We're going to start in verse 24. And this is the next day. There's this whole little like storm and walking on the water thing that happens in between, but we'll get there next week. So we're skipping ahead a little bit in the story, but this is the next day. Verse 24 of John 6 says, Once the crowd realized that neither Jesus nor his disciples were there, Right, Because remember, they got into a boat and they got into a storm and they went to the other side. We'll get there next week. Once they discovered that neither Jesus nor his disciples were there, they got into the boats and went to Capernaum and searched for Jesus. And when they found him on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, 
when did you get here? In other words, they're saying, what was up with that? Like we were all together on the other side and we're all eating food and everybody's happy. We wake up in the morning, you're gone. When did you get here? Jesus answered, very truly I tell you, you are looking for me, not because you saw the signs, saw, okay? That, the idea there's perceived and understood the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Okay, so they kind of took this little dig at Jesus like, I mean, where were you, dude? You bailed on the party. And Jesus is like, here's why you're looking for me. Not because you got something deep and meaningful from me, but because you got free burritos. And now he's going to school them. Verse 27, do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life. He's trying to turn their attention from their temporal experience to the eternal significance. From the temporal experience to the eternal significance. What this whole incident was a sign of, what it pointed toward. Again, verse 27, do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him, God the Father has placed his seal of approval. Then they asked him, what must we do to do the works God requires? Right? So right there, they're saying, well, what do we got to do to earn it? You said to work for eternal food. Remember, they're coming from a works-based Hebraic Jewish religious perspective. So they're like, okay, well, what, what work do we have to do for this eternal life? This is a very important answer Jesus gives in verse 29. Jesus answered, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent, speaking of himself. He said to them, all you have to do for this eternal life is believe in me. You will not believe what they say next. So they asked him, what sign then will you give us that we may see it and believe? What are you going to do? Wait a minute, you guys are kidding me. He just took five loaves and two fish and fed several thousand and now he's saying, believe in you, well, prove it. What, do you, what, do you get, what sign are you going to give us? These guys are unbelievable. And then they take a little dig. Our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness as it is written, he gave them bread from heaven. Now, pause right there. What, what they're doing now is doing what every Hebrew mind did in any new religious experience or with any claimed religious leader, which was to hold it up against the example of Moses. Mo was their guy. Like in the Old Testament, Moses is a dude. Anybody ever asked you Old Testament to be like, Moses, and you got the answer right. Mo was the guy. And so they're holding Jesus's gig here up against Moses. Remember when the children of Israel wandering through the wilderness and through Moses, God provided them manna every morning. Remember that manna every morning? They come out and there'd be fresh bread in the dew. And they're saying, well, our ancestors, right, ate the manna in the wilderness. He gave them bread to eat. Jesus says to them, very truly I tell you, it wasn't Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father who gives you the true bread bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Verse 34, sir, they said, always give us this bread. In other words, well then give us this bread every day because Moses let him have the bread every single day. 
We were there with you on the other side of the lake and you gave us bread one day. Now we're here the next day and there's no bread. He wants to believe in you. It's this great thing, this great promise, this great prophet. Give us this bread every single day. Verse 35, then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. Now, obviously, Jesus is talking about deeper things. Because you could go to Jesus and you could love Jesus and be super hungry and super thirsty. He's talking about the deep hunger and the deep thirst of the human spirit. He was talking about our collective experience that searches and seeks to be satisfied in everything we could get our hands on and put inside of us, but we all together find that it never satisfies. That only Jesus, the bread from heaven, in whom we are called to believe, ultimately and always satisfies. This is the nature of the prayer. Give us this day our daily bread. And Jesus says, I am the bread of life. And we all together have looked everywhere else. Jesus is the only way that the human spirit is ever fully satisfied, satiated, pleased, and made whole. This is made possible because God loves us and we are separated from God by our sins. So God gave us his son, Jesus, come down after us, to humble himself as a servant and die on the cross in our place to pay the price for our sins that we might have forgiveness and be reconciled to God and so have eternal, abundant, whole, satisfied life in Jesus. This is the love of God. This is the bread, the nourishment, the true sustenance of life. And what we do as humans is we wander through this world looking for it in every other place. It's in Jesus. Turn to Jesus. Put your faith in Jesus. Repent of your sins. Find what you were made for in Jesus. You were made for a relationship with God. But then we who have already done that, Christians who are a strange lot, We experience the satisfaction in Jesus and then don't we so often wonder and go back to old places? Like the Israelites did, you know? God delivered them from Egypt, from Pharaoh and they're in the wilderness and at some point, you know, the presence of God and the pillar of fire and the cloud by night wasn't enough and they said, oh gosh, we really miss the onions and the garlics back in Egypt. We're gonna go back into Egypt where they were slaves and enslaved and their children were murdered. But man, we have that tendency that prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, the song says. That's why we pray, give us this day our daily bread. Help me today, God, to find my sustenance, my strength, my joy, my peace in Jesus. And that is a gift that requires intentionality. A gift that requires intentionality. God has given us that gift. We've got to press in. We've got to pursue. We've got to daily go after Jesus. His mercies are new every morning, the scriptures say. 
That God would open our eyes to the places where we're looking for satisfaction. Man, I am so like that. But the scriptures tell us that Jesus is enough. That Jesus is more than enough. That if I will actually lose my life for him, I will discover in abundance. I won't only be satisfied. There will be a basket left over for me to feast on in the person of Jesus. May we have faith to go after him hard in meeting the needs of the world for the good of the world and the glory of Jesus. Amen? Amen. Thank you, God, for these good and gracious truths. Thank you, Holy Spirit, that you are the teacher of all things. And so would, would you apply to our lives these things, Lord? Would you help us to see what we don't see, to comprehend what we're failing to comprehend? Would, would you help us by grace to take stock of our lives and those places where we're functioning out of self-preservation instead of giving ourselves to all that stuff? Holy Spirit, you do it. Thank you that your word says, if we draw near to you, you'll draw near to us. So we draw near to you now in song and in prayer and in the Lord's Supper. Listen, maybe today you're realizing you're lacking a certain area, some area where you really need God's provision. Maybe he's been like putting some call on you or opening your eyes to some need. You're like, I can't meet that, man. I got to protect my gig and I only have this. Man, bring your lack and place it in the hands of Jesus today. Prayer team is up here. They love you. They care for you. They're powerful in prayer. Let them help you put your lack and your weakness in the hands of Jesus. Receive strength today. And then, you know, there was another time where Jesus broke bread and distributed it to the disciples. It was at the Last Supper. This time he added something. Just like on Galilee, he broke the bread. But he said, this now is my body broken for you. As often as you eat of it, do it in remembrance of me. And he gave it to the disciples and they ate of it. And then he took the cup and he said, this cup is my blood, the cup of the new covenant poured out for the forgiveness of sins of many. As many as you, as often as you drink of it, do it in remembrance of me. And they would have been thinking about, whoa, this is, Jesus is the bread. I get it now, I get it. He was broken for us that we might be healed and made whole. And we remember that and we celebrate that in the Lord's Supper. So today we invite you to communion. If you put your faith in Jesus, come and celebrate. Come remember, come rejoice. Take the bread, God's provision of his son for you. Drink of the cup, forgiveness of sins. And celebrate this great love we have in Christ.